So the reading today is from Luke chapter 20, verses 19 to 26, and it's on page 1055 of the Bibles in front of you. Luke chapter 20, verse 19. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately, because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. This is the word of the Lord. On Sunday evenings at this time of the year, we normally tend to study one of the Gospels. Now when we do Mark, it just takes two terms. In other words, one each year, it's two years. If it's Matthew, it takes about six terms, six years. If to cover Luke, as we are at the moment, it takes about five terms. And we're now covering the last section of Luke, chapters 20 to 28. And the reason why we tend to do a gospel in the evening at this time of the year is because we think that it's probably easiest for those of you who are moving up from Engage to Unite Plus... It's easiest for you to, uh, in all the other uh, changes you're getting used to, um, it's easiest for you to get your head round and to discover or rediscover the benefit of studying the Bible seriously. And by that I mean that you give it your best shot. You give it the same amount of kind of mental energy as you would give to the best subject that you're studying at school or college. After all, does God deserve less of your ability to study the Bible than anything else? Because that's the way in which we get to know Jesus Christ and through him get to know God and we learn about his grand plan and for our part in it. So let's have a look at this. Um, Rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. It's about the relationship of the Christian to the state, really. So uh, let's remind ourselves of the context. We are in the last week of Jesus' life on earth. We've seen his uh, coming to Jerusalem as king, and he's acknowledged by very many followers, even though the, the depth to which they understand what he's about would vary significantly. And he comes as the king, predicted in the Old Testament, as a humble king, without the trappings that the world might expect. And as king, his aim is to save his people. But he also comes 
as God's great king, to lay claim to what is rightfully his. But the Jewish leaders representing the nation are in rebellion against their God, and they refuse to accept that Jesus is their rightful king, and they show no interest in discovering the truth about him. In fact, they only seek to try and trap him so that he might be executed, and then they'll be rid of him. Now, realising that in the parable of the wicked tenants, which uh, was covered last week, realising that Jesus is speaking against them, they do decide to get him. Verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. They particularly want to try and catch him making a seditious comment, so that the Roman authorities would have to take action, which for Jesus would in fact be fatal. And they begin with an insincere compliment, 21. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Beware of flattery. The purpose of buttering somebody up is to get them off guard. Most people succumb to a certain amount of flattery. You see, people like compliments. They make us feel good. And our initial thought might be, oh, this is a nice person who's saying nice things about me. But beware. Then their question, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, many of the Jews, the Pharisees and the Zealots as well as the ordinary folk, resented paying taxes to the Roman occupiers. But whichever way Jesus answered, he would lose. If he said pay, then the populace would be against him and he would be seen as being disloyal both to God and the people. If he said don't pay, then they, particularly the Sadducees and the Herodians, who sided with the occupying power, Well, they'd tell the Romans, who would see this as an act of sedition, and Jesus would be tried, executed as a rebel rabble-rouser. So, they think they've got him. However, verse 23, he saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. So the division of the church and the state. Now on that coin would have either probably been the image of Caesar Augustus who died in 14 AD or perhaps more likely Caesar Tiberius who reigned from 14 AD to 37 AD. Now, if it's Tiberius, the inscription would have read Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of divine Augustus. Now, that's interesting for two reasons. One is that these uh, 
these um, spies who are asking the question are already, because they produce the coin, they are already using it, aren't they? And furthermore, it has got on there an inscription which says Augustus is a god and Tiberius is the son of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, you know, you're already using it and you're a monotheistic Jews, and it's okay to do so. Use the coin which bears Caesar's image to pay taxes, which will provide for roads and aqueducts and pavements and protection from invasion and a justice system, albeit an imperfect one. These are obligations of the citizen. But they're also, as Christians, people, the Christians are bearers of God's image in their lives. And so we have an obligation to be like the one who's made us in his own image. An image which, yes, it's marred since the fall, but in Christ it can be restored to some significant degree, this side of heaven. And so to follow Christ is to reflect in our character something of Christ, living up to the demands of the law out of gratitude for salvation rather than to earn salvation and we do that by honouring parents not murdering people not committing adultery not stealing, not lying, not coveting well that foxed them didn't it Luke records the verdict of the contemporary witnesses verse 26 they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Now, interestingly, in writing about ministers of the state, as Paul does in Romans 13, he uses the very same words which are used elsewhere of ministers of the church. And we see that... What that means in practice is that people who serve the state as legislators, as civil servants, as magistrates, police, social workers, teachers, tax collectors, they are just as much ministers, diakonoi, of God, as those who serve churches as pastors, teachers, evangelists, administrators and the like. And we see that today in our government and our church, the same terms are used. We have a prime minister. We have ministers of state. We have civil servants who serve the people of the country. And similarly in the church, we have, if you like, ecclesiastical servants who are called ministers of God because they serve the people of God. And Christians are both members of the state and of the church. And we receive benefits from both, and so we should participate in both and contribute towards the cost of providing such benefits. Well, that's all there is really to say about rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. But so you don't feel shortchanged, we'll use the opportunity to look a little bit further about the relationship between the church and the state. So if you'd like to sort of pick up your Bibles 
and turn to page 1140, where you'll find Romans 13. And we'll read a few things which I think we'll find helpful and clarifying. After all, you know, we, um, we have the good fortune to be participants in the state. When we become 18, we do get the right to vote. When we're whatever age, we have to obey the laws of the state. That provides challenges, doesn't it? We also, some of us, may well actually work for the state and be officers of the state. So let's try and cover some of these things. So Romans 13, first one. First of all, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So there is a divine origin of both church and state. And what's the purpose of the state? Well, verse 3, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. And that's amplified further in verse 4. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So God has set up the state in order to maintain law and order. And we should obey for at least two reasons that are given here. One is out of fear of the consequences, the adverse consequences of doing wrong. And the second one, which is in the next verse, verse 5, out of conscience, because contravening what is God's law sends us on a guilt trip if we disobey. Verse 5, therefore it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. And back to verse 2 in chapter 13, consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Another question, why is the maintenance of law and order a good thing? Well, this time turn to 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 4, which is page 1192. And there are many reasons why having law and order is a good thing. Try living in a country where there is anarchy. But here, this is the one that Paul particularly flags up. 1 Timothy 2. I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone. But he particularly singles out the government for kings and those in authority. Why? Because we may live a peaceful, quiet uh, lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, he says, and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So when the government restrains chaos, what Paul's saying is conditions are best for the preaching of the gospel. And God desires all people to be given the opportunity in this life. This is the one big thing people have to kind of face up to. The opportunity to turn back to God, to repent, and so acquire salvation. And that is why Paul is stressing that 
good government is essential. So what stronger motivation could we possibly have as Christians than to ensure that the government works well? The fifth thing, is it ever right for a Christian to disobey the government? Well, whenever laws are enacted which contradict God's law, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. There are notable examples in scripture, but they're rare. When Pharaoh, for example, ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill all the newborn boys, they refused to obey. We read, we read in Exodus 1.17, the midwives feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. Because it is wrong to practice infanticide. You can't go round killing babies. When King Nebuchadnezzar decreed that all his subjects must fall down and worship his golden image, what did Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego do? Well, they refused to obey. They believed, they said, that uh, um, they, they knew that they may well be executed. And they said their God could save them from that. But even if he didn't, they would still obey him rather than contravene his laws and obey what Nebuchadnezzar said. As King Darius, he made a decree in uh, for 30 days nobody should pray to any god or man except himself and daniel who was pretty high ranking and had a long lifetime's reputation refused to obey this new king had gone too far and when the sanhedrin banned preaching in the name of jesus what did the apostles do well they refused to obey acts 4:18 they said in the following chapter, verse chapter 5, we must obey God rather than men. Now all of those are rather heroic refusals. In spite of threats which accompanied the edicts. In each case, civil disobedience involved great personal risk, including possible loss of life. In each case, its purpose was to demonstrate their submissiveness to God rather than their defiance of the government. And this civil disobedience arises naturally from the Christian affirmation that Jesus is Lord. And the principle is clear, even though its application may involve us as believers in great agonies of conscience should it ever come our way. We are to submit to the state because its authority is derived from God and its officials are God's ministers. And we do so right up to the point where obedience to the state would involve us in disobedience to God. That's worth repeating. We are to submit to the state because its authority is derived from God and its officials are God's ministers right up to the point where obedience to the state would involve us in disobedience to God. At that point, our Christian duty is to disobey the state in order to obey God. For if the state misuses 
its God-given authority and presumes either to command what God forbids or to forbid what God commands, we have to say no to the state in order that we can say yes to Christ. As Peter puts it, we must obey God rather than men. Fortunately, such occasions would be very rare indeed in our country, but sometimes they could happen. John Calvin said, Obedience to man must not become disobedience to God. So even the state, God appointed that it is, its power is qualified. Sixthly, what about the relationship then between the church and the state? Relationships between the church and the state in history have been quite controversial. And to oversimplify, there are four main models which have been tried. There's what's called Erastianism, where the state controls the church. An example of that would be probably during Stalin's Russia, where they did virtually control the Orthodox Church. Or in Hitler's Germany, in a slightly different, more subtle kind of way. The second is theocracy, where the church controls the state. My knowledge of medieval history is a bit vague, limited to Robin Hood, really, I suppose, um, where the church did seem to be mighty powerful and uh, you know, had got the kings in their pockets. Then there's Constantianism, which is... Uh, the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian in the 300 uh, AD and uh, he worked out a compromise between the state and the church where the state favours the church and the church accommodates to the state in order to retain its favour. And then there's lastly, fourthly, partnership. The church and the state recognise and encourage each other's distinct God-given responsibilities in a spirit of constructive collaboration. I think in the light of what we've so far seen, that fourth option seems to accord best with both Jesus's and Paul's teaching. Well, does a Christian ever act differently depending on whether he is acting as an officer of the state or as a private individual. Let's consider an example. Just think of that recent killing of that journalist in Northern Ireland by a masked new IRA gunman. Two questions for you to answer. If during that rioting you had been one of the police firearms officers, and they were around when you look at the photographs. They are, they're in the shadows. Sometimes they're more up front, but they were there. And you, in the distance, in your sights, you see a gunman hooded with clearly a uh, handgun, and he's pointing towards the crowd of journalists and others who are on one side of the divide. Would it be right for you to discharge your weapon and use lethal force? You're the same police firearms officer. 
and you decided that you wouldn't do that because you don't want to fire the first shot. You go home only to discover that it had been your daughter that had been killed. Would you then be justified in going out and killing the young man who you probably knew from your police intelligence who he was? In the first scenario, you are operating as an officer of the state. You are acting under the authority of the government. You are armed and trained to protect life. There is a clear threat to life. You can and should, arguably, fire. The state would expect you to do your job and hopefully thank you for doing so. The second scenario, you are a private citizen, although you're the same person, acting on your own initiative and in your own personal interest with equipment from work. You're acting as a private individual. You have no authority to kill the suspect. You would be acting out of personal revenge and anger as a father and the state would charge you, try you, and punish you for murder. So what have we learnt this evening? Well, from Luke 20 and elsewhere, that we have a duty to both participate and pay for the government. And if we are an officer of the state, that we act under its authority. We learn from Romans that God has ordained uh, governments to exercise justice, to reward good and to punish evil. We learn from 1 Timothy that God maintains this social order so that the Christian message can most easily get out to all people, so as many as possible have an equal opportunity to hear and respond to God's call on their life. And from Acts 5, 4 and 5 though, we learn that our submission to the government, whether as a citizen or even an employee of the government, is limited. In other words, we have a duty to hold the government to be accountable to a higher standard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of good government and we pray that through our prayers and our participation, whether it just be at a distance in voting or whether it be being involved either as a politician or as a civil servant, that we might uh, enhance its action, that it might conform to your plans and desires for it. But we also pray, Heavenly Father, that we might retain our critical faculties and challenge it wherever it seems to be um, going too far and getting to that tipping point where we're forced to choose between serving it or following you. Give us great wisdom, we pray, we pray especially if we ever find ourselves in such situations. Amen.